Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Saddlewick. Today, my guest is former Dallas City Council member Philip Kingston. He is joining me for a discussion that will no doubt keep your ears perked and your mind spinning. Philip Kingston was first elected to public office in 2013 as a representative on the Dallas City Council. He is an outspoken progressive politician. Mr. Kingston was not afraid to address controversial issues that in his mind robbed the citizens of Dallas of millions in tax dollar funding through insular programs that only benefited the few and the privileged. Currently, Philip is a practicing commercial litigation attorney focused on governmental and regulatory strategy. In September of last year, he sued the city of Dallas on behalf of the developers of a downtown housing project that was intended to benefit those in need of affordable housing. I would say in addition to serving his fellow man through community initiatives, pursuing justice, and writing a food column for the Dallas Observer, he is a connoisseur of politics with the knowledge of a Renaissance man. Welcome to Breaking Protocol, Phil. What an introduction. Thank you. Didn't you like that? Got a little creative there. It's creative and probably way too generous. I got to know you, know of you, I should say, while you were serving uh, as a representative on the Dallas City Council. Now, you weren't specifically the representative from my part of, of Dallas, but I don't look at representatives that way, which might be a good place for us to kick this conversation off. I think representatives are elected from a constituency, but they're tasked with representing the entire population. What do you think about that? Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's part of it. That's a mindset that many politicians used to have. It was a really common thing to say, you know, and you hear it less and less. And I think it, I think people believe it less and less and they, they don't feel called to represent the people who didn't vote for them. Um, even the people in their own district who didn't vote for them. And that, that's wrong. That's not the job description. Yeah. We see a lot more of that these days. It's really strange to me that if you are a Democrat and your representative to Congress or the state house is Republican, then they have no interest in talking to you. They have no interest in, in hearing your voice representing your side of, you know, the initiative, so to speak. It's, you know, we have gotten to that very divisive place. There is, there are exceptions. I think, um, I think, um, are you, you trying to say count. there's some good guys out there? Yeah, I, I think, yeah. And, you know, it's sort of a, a, there might be kind of a threshold function going on, meaning that we, we've declined in the number of sort of good people out there to a point where the system doesn't function. And it feels like nobody is practicing that old time politics of trying to listen to everybody and represent everybody. And maybe we just need to, you know, increase that level a certain amount to get back to politics that isn't so divisive and mean. But I see, um, I think you can always count on Clay Jenkins to listen to people on the other side of the aisle. He, he's, I, I think he makes it uh, his goal to be incredibly respectful 
to people. And I would bet you that there's not a Republican in Dallas County who really, you know, feels personal animosity toward him. And I, you know, for, I think Joe Biden deserves credit for using conciliatory language and talking about representing the country as a whole. Now he's being handed the easiest uh, presidential campaign in the history of our nation right now, ex- with the possible exception of George Washington's first run, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but, it, you know, kudos to him for recognizing that the thing that has been left out of our national uh, dialogue is empathy and a conciliatory, empathetic approach to governance. You know, it's interesting. I started my interest in the political arena when I was 14 years old and volunteering for a campaign and just understanding what representatives were and how they impacted my life, even as a young adult. It was something that always interested me. And one of the things I wrote about in my book, I feel, or maybe I felt, I'm not sure if I still feel this, but I certainly felt this at one time, that a politician entered the political platform with a pure heart and the intention of doing the right thing for everyone, knowing that not everyone would necessarily agree with you, of course. But somewhere along the way, and very quickly, they truly get sidetracked. What do you think that is? It's a number of different things. And, and I think different politicians fall victim to different stuff. I, I know that in my last term, I ran real short of empathy for my constituents. I met some people who, quite frankly, they just, they're bad people, you know? And you, you, you wind up representing bad people and they do nasty, stupid things. And it, you know, it'll wear you out. So sometimes it's fatigue. Sometimes it's, you know, there, there is corruption. I mean, I, I haven't seen a ton of it. I, I mean, one of the guys I served with is in the federal penitentiary. So I saw some of it, but. Well, some of your former colleagues on the Dallas City Council, and it's not indicative of Dallas City Council, it's just indicative of politics. But you've, you've had a few colleagues that have done some time at the big house, so to speak. Well, during the time I served, there's only one who went to prison. There was another one who was under investigation, and there was probably another one, if she hadn't lost her race, might might have been investigated. (laughs) Omar Narvaez probably saved uh, Monica Alonzo from an FBI investigation by beating her, I think. But the other thing I was going to say is politicians lose their way when they care more about being somebody than about doing something good for other people. And if you keep your mind focused on doing something good for other people, even if you're an imperfect person to do that, you're not really going to do harm. You're at least going to do some good. And that's, that's, you know, it sounds like Sunday school or playground rules or whatever, but it's just you're supposed to be there to serve people in a positive way, regardless of what your title is or what office you want to be in. And that's the other thing about the business is people get in it and either in their first run, they're just trying to be somebody or then they, they're addicted to public office and they want to hold the next office, even though they don't have a plan for 
what they're going to do while they're there. And once you want to be somebody more than you want to do something, then you'll do anything to be somebody. Well, the ultimate definition, whether you're elected to public office at the local level, state, federal, is the very short title and very definitive title of that position is you are a public servant. It's plain and simple. You're a public servant. And when you stop serving the public, then you truly are at a place where the public should remove you. That's becoming more difficult. Do you feel that it's more difficult at the federal level versus the local level or somewhere in between based on the knowledge of the constituency? Yeah, the local level is almost the only level that hasn't become completely paralyzed. The local level is the only place where you see real innovation now. And cities particularly have taken over from states and federal governments to, I mean, what, the first real example I saw of this was when uh, the IPCC was going to meet in Paris in 2014 and issue a new climate treaty is essentially what they wanted. And the French hosting this, the, the French diplomatic corps recognized instantly that they were never going to get a state level agreement, that there was no chance of getting any meaningful agreement out of that conference. And so they started a couple of years earlier, signing up cities and regional governments and counties to commit to climate action so that, that they got some meaningful benefit out of organizing around climate change. And cities have been leading on that. And it's, it's created a situation in which states and the national governments have an easier time agreeing to multilateral treaties because a lot of their political subdivisions are already doing it. But I would say that the problem, there is a central problem, and I'm not the only one who sees it. I'm, I'm certainly not the smartest guy on earth. But the, the thing is, it all grows out of gerrymandering. The districts are drawn to produce a certain kind of representative and they reliably do it every time. And when you have gerrymandering, you put enormous power in the hands of the most extreme elements of your party. And so you see things, for instance, just this week, Governor Abbott reversed himself and issued a statewide mask order after having for months said that no Texan could be made to wear a mask. Well, Which is interesting because we have that in and of itself, glad you brought that up, something I wanted to talk about. One, that's in direct contradiction to what the president of the United States is actually leading on at the moment, which is rather interesting. It's also in direct contradiction to his own uh, position of his lieutenant governor. So clearly, they must be at odds with one another. Correct. And this is why I have little regard for Greg Abbott. I could go on at length about why, but he deserves some credit for this week because it is a certainty that he will face a primary challenge in 2022. And the first issue that he will be attacked on is masks. Do you think that primary challenger will be Dan Patrick? I don't. I think it'll be Dan Crenshaw. Okay. 
Um, but you, you know, same deal, same, same family, right? Yeah, right. Why, why, why would you want to give up being the light governor to be the governor? The light governor has more power, really. So the issue here is they're going to call him mask boy. They're, I mean, they're going to use nasty Trumpian attacks like that. And so he's going to have to face that challenge. But the, the reason they have that much power is not because that is the feeling of the majority of Texans. Something like 75% of Texans believe we should be wearing masks. And so it's a small group, but that those gerrymandered districts leave the power in the Republican Party with the Tea Party, with the Dan Patrick wing of the party. And it makes anybody on the Republican side acting moderate makes them very vulnerable. Well, um, and you have a judge up in Collin County this very week as well. In fact, the same day, Governor Abbott issued his proclamation. Collin County Judge Chris Hill turned around and said, I'm ruling differently. And citizens of Collin County can gather, you know, as many people as they want, which going right into a holiday weekend is intentionally putting people's lives in harm's way. That's what Judge Chris Hill is doing. Is there not anything that can be done with when when you have an elected leader who intentionally puts the lives of their constituency in harm's way? Is there anything other than them being voted out of office that can be done? Uh, I've been asked this question a lot this week because people are anxious to go to court, and which I love because, you know, that's how I make my living now. Yeah, you're, you're um, an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer is probably not. There, there are mechanisms in Texas uh, for testing an order like that, especially during a declared disaster. There, that sets off a legal structure that is actually pretty well thought out in the in the Texas government code, and there are ways to test that order. The problem is what he would be entitled to probably, and there's very little case law on this, because fortunately we haven't had to test a lot of emergency orders during pandemics, is he'd be entitled to an arbitrary and capricious standard. And what that means is that a court would have to find that there's just no logical reason for his order and courts are very reticent to do that. So the court is probably not a great place to test that order. But the thing, the way the government code works during a, a, a declared disaster is that county judges, mayors of cities, and the governor all share co-equal powers just within whatever jurisdiction. The governor's jurisdiction is statewide. And obviously the mayor is of the city and the, the judge is of the county. And so if, for instance, both Plano and Allen debated mask orders this last week and also went the wrong way, right. <laughs> um, Mayor LaRossier in, in Plano was particularly bitter. He had a, a very entertaining, well, depressing, but well-written Facebook post expressing his extreme disappointment with his colleagues. And but they could have gone the other way, and if they were to were to have said, "Yeah, you you can't gather in more than ten people, and you got to wear masks," those orders would trump Hill's order within those cities in Collin County. Now the governor has been denying that that is the way that the government code works. He has threatened mayors and county judges with the loss of vital medical resources, even 
I mean, he's been truly nasty. If they if they tried to um, enforce mask orders that were different from his orders or what, you know, any he is using a provision of the government code that does not say what he says it says to claim that he has superiority to those other officers during a, uh, a disaster declaration. And it's just not true. And I have beaten my head against the wall and I'm really, I'm not even allowed to talk to Melissa about this anymore. She just doesn't want to hear it <laughs> anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I have been dying to get some of our good progressive council members and county judges to sue the governor. And obviously I, my first pitch to them was hire me to do it. But my sincere desire is just that somebody does it so that we can put this question to rest. So there will be um, a legal precedent set for exactly. when, if and when, God forbid, this ever happens again. And by the way, this is not the law according to Philip Kingston. I, I, I try to be as smart as I can be, but we all have limitations. The Texas Municipal League agrees with me, um, and they've got you know rooms full of smart lawyers. So I, I, I feel like I'm on pretty firm ground on this stuff, and it, it has... I have had a sense of disappointment with the level of courage that has been shown by local leaders during, a, a, specifically with regard to the actions of the governor. In some cases, I think it's fair to say, despite what may or may not be the outcome of a legal maneuver that you're discussing, by the time that takes place, even if it can take place quickly, even if a judge were to set a legal motion into play within 48 hours, in this type of scenario, the, the cat's out of the bag. I mean, it's we're already three or four days down the path. You've already had a you know stadium full of people celebrating a holiday without masks. And by that point, and oh, by the way, there's not a wall between Collin County and Dallas County. I've noticed. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of crossover there. And that sort of thing, the challenge with all of it is that you have, the way I look at it, is you have adults behaving badly. Why is it so political? Why, why is wearing a mask so political? It, go, it goes right to the president. I mean, it's absolutely, the, the president made this political from the very beginning. And I believe the, the, that initially it was out of a sense of trying to excuse himself for not having the storehouse of PPE that we were supposed to have, you know? He didn't have masks to be able to give to people, and so they, he sent out the message, oh, you don't need a mask, it doesn't help, or whatever. And, you know, everybody's fawning over Anthony Fauci, and I guess he's okay, but he went along with that. And, you know, I think the record will show that that guy uh, did some real damage to our country in March. Well, clearly the coronavirus task force lockstepped behind Donald Trump's wishes, despite yeah. their public service duty to the citizens of this country. Now, it's interesting, and, and, and I don't want to jump into the Trump into the swimming pool yet. We're going to get there. <laughs> uh, we're going to get there. Through the uh, opening up of Texas commerce in direct contradiction, and this is a fact, people can, people can argue all they want with the alternative facts, but the real facts are 
Texas opened its commerce in direct contradiction to the guidelines of the CDC and the White House Coronavirus Task Force. We were not declining in any way over a two-week period, and it was just ignored. It was just flat ignored. And it was one of those situations where they just pretended, oh, it's magically going to go away. And so as a result of that, the businesses that opened, bars, restaurants, uh, shops, those are the folks that had to be out on the front line contracting the virus. And then those of us in the arena that, the political arena, I should say, specifically, who are supposed to be setting policies to protect those folks, failed them. The public servants failed them. Well, more, more, there's a more cynical calculation that went on. I mean, Greg Abbott was caught on a hot mic essentially saying that it didn't matter if he wasn't following guidelines. As long as we had enough hospital capacity, it was better to be open. And this is something that I think he believes, but it is demonstrably false. Um, public health is completely synonymous with healthy economic activity. And there's no reason to set them against each other as though they, they were competing. And so the, the thing is, you know, his recent pullback is a result of betting wrong about hospital capacity, because in the large counties of the state, and now even in the smaller counties of the state, there isn't enough capacity. And he, you know, when, the, when Texas Medical Center in Houston indicated that it had reached capacity, Abbott got on the phone with them and threatened them. And they changed their tune. They said they, they had enough capacity. They didn't. They went on a divert. Two hospitals locally have been on diverts within the last week or so. And a divert is not a normal thing. It's when the hospital says, we literally can't take anybody else. Ambulances do not come here. We're, we're shut down. And so we are much closer to capacity than even the numbers that the hospitals are reporting would lead us to believe. And it's not, people have been tracking the availability of ICU beds or ventilators, and that's very important. Of course, we need those things. But for all of those physical assets to be able to save your life, you need skilled practitioners. And that's where we're hitting the limit. So you might have 10 ICU beds available over at Methodist in, in Oak Cliff, and, but if you don't have 10 ICU teams ready to go, doctor, nurse, um, nursing assistant, there's, they're not going to save anybody. Well, and the one thing that the media is failing to talk about in relation to ICU beds and capacity is what about the medical needs? of those folks out there who don't have COVID, but have a real medical need. And the hospital is so consumed with COVID and COVID patients and COVID treatment that you may or may not get efficient treatment for a non-COVID patient. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's going to be the case. I'm just saying that is a stress level that has been placed in the medical arena that is of, should be great concern. Absolutely correct. And not to mention that people are terrified of contracting COVID at the hospital. You know, they're not going unless they absolutely have to go. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, our friend uh, Tom Adair 
suffered that exact thing. His dad right. went to the hospital for something unrelated, contracted COVID and died there, right. separated from his family. It's just an absolute tragedy. I'm going to say some folks, until they are directly impacted, have no conceptualization of what their loved ones went through. But you shouldn't have to go through that. You shouldn't have to have a personal experience of someone dying, knowing the tragedy that they're going through without you, without the love of their family, to understand how incredibly horrible that is that we put our fellow man in that position. I don't, I really, that is something that I just can't comprehend. But yet, but yet they are. Uh, they are out there playing around like this is a common cold and it's sad and it's, it's inconsiderate and it's inhumane. I want to move to your Twitter page. <laughs> I love I love Phil Kingston's Twitter page, and I'm going to tell you why I love it so much. So when you when you change the title, so to speak, do you at that point when you change the title, do you continually tweet about the related subject matter under that title, and then do you when you change the title again, or do you just you still tweet about whatever you want to tweet? I know I just tweet about whatever I want to tweet about. And if you follow me, I'm at Philip T. Kingston on all platforms. I think every social media platform. Right. Most of what you are going to get is my reading list. And you're going to see the people I read and, and follow. And, and you're, you're going to get exposed to the ideas I'm exposing myself to. But I try to have enough additional content that it's not just like, a curated list of retweets from me. Sure. And I'm not, I'm not focusing anything on, I generally have a, a basket of four or five issues that I'm, that are, that have my attention. And you'll see a lot of that as it goes along. And a lot of it is local government stuff. I think the, our, our local governments, particularly city of Dallas has done a pretty pathetic job of reacting to uh, coronavirus. There are lots of little things that that city government could do that would make our lives a lot more comfortable and better in the, you know, when we can't go to work, when we can't live life as we would normally do it without coronavirus. And so I I'm very consistently needle them on issues like that. And then wouldn't it be fair to say, though, that I that municipal governments look up to county governments, state governments, and ultimately federal governments on for leadership on such challenges as a pandemic? They should be able to, but Bob, anybody who's been in this game in the last 20 years knows that the cavalry is not coming. And you have to take the lead as a local leader to protect your people or to enhance the quality of their life because nobody is going to come help you do it. And in fact, sometimes they're going to stand in your way. And there is, there is, in my mind, there is no excuse for timidity in public office. Well, I agree with that. Well, this is sort of a classic stereotype of politicians that are inactive because they are worried about offending, you know, one group or another. And I just, I've never had any regard for that. And I see it right now in our city council. And I, I find it to be, you know, really bad, really reprehensible, because they're missing out on the opportunity 
to really make significant improvement in people's lives. Now, they did a couple of good things. They, they have some rental assistance, which is clearly one of the most critical needs of poor people in Dallas, and not just poor people, people who are newly poor, thanks to you know, loss of employment. Sure. Our city council members are broadly extremely wonderful people. They're, they're actually great. But there's something about the interaction of this specific group that makes them ineffective in their jobs. Well, there's no doubt that you could never be accused of having been a timid politician. No. And in fact, I think it might even be fair to say that had you been a little more timid, you might still be on the city council. Yeah, I would still be on the city council and there would be important initiatives that we accomplished that would not have gotten done. That's exactly and so right. I, pr- I prefer this timeline. I'm not, I'm not going back to a different timeline. Well, and I bring that up. I, I bring that up not to criticize you in any way. I actually bring that up to prove the point that what you are saying is entirely legitimate. And there needs to be more people who truly care about the cause than about the reelection. Well, I think that they do. I don't think that you have a bunch of craven people on the city council right now who are, you know, just in it for themselves or for a career or something. They're just not, they're, they're not nasty. And frankly, the job didn't pay enough for anybody to be that way. Um, they, but they, they just don't play well together. We do know someone that is nasty and that is in it for themselves. And I wouldn't have a Breaking Protocol podcast if we didn't talk <laughs> about Donald Trump for a minute. Now, we're in a real serious crisis in this country. I get the impression that there is a large percentage of folks out there who, along with the president of the United States, are ignoring all of it. And it's not just coronavirus. It's the economic viability of the country, and it's the viability of our democracy as a whole. You have people actually arguing now whether we're even a democracy. And we have become so incredibly divisive in this way. Do you see any opportunity to move this country back to a place where we can all hold hands again? I firmly believe Joe Biden will win and will be our next president. And I I really think that there will be certain things that get through Congress, partly because the coronavirus has convinced us that things like unemployment insurance are really super important and expanding health care is really super important. And I think that there will be a bipartisan push on those two issues specifically. And if they happen to send Joe Biden something that looks like uh, Medicare for all, despite his public pronouncements, I don't think he would possibly veto bipartisan health care reform. I don't think he would possibly veto expansions of um, existing welfare uh, programs and Unemployment insurance isn't welfare. You know, the workers already paid for that. So they they should be getting more of it. I think that that guy is going to be the kind of person that he's been for 40 years. And if there's a consensus that comes out of his own party from Congress, I don't think he's ever going to stand in the way of that kind of positive change. So I have some optimism about that. And the other 
The other thing that I have optimism about is I think that President Obama and Eric Holder uh, and a bunch of other lawyers doing the same thing are going to ultimately be successful in changing the way redistricting works in enough states that we're going to end some of this extremism that I referred to earlier. Sure. If things can be ungerrymandered, then it will move power back to the middle. And the middle is super healthy. There's a, there's a really good example here in Texas. Yep. The only congressional district that the courts found to have been drawn to violate the Voting Rights Act, back when we had a Voting Rights Act, it was Texas 23. And it's this long district that stretches from the Big Bend to Northwest San Antonio. I actually lived in this district at one point. And uh, they, they drew it so bad, they drew it for, I think, a guy named Henry Bonilla, if I remember correctly, to keep a Republican there. And it got redrawn by the courts and to make it a little bit more fair. And then it changed hands between Democrats and Republicans like two times in the next two cycles. And this is the, this is the, the district that uh, Will Hurd just retired from and will probably be represented by Gene Ortiz Jones, who should have won last time, got really close. Um, but it, the thing is, it's a very moderate district and you have to run as a moderate in order to represent it. And I think if more of America got to see representation like Will Hurd or Pete Gallego, who, ha who was there before him, those two guys politically aren't very different. It would, but what they do is they reflect the electorate that they have. And I think if people feel represented, even if it's not the party that you typically vote for that's representing you, man, it just, that feels like the way Congress used to work a long time ago. I think I would refer to that as balanced instead of either moderate or even liberal, just balanced. It sounds like a balanced situation. I think so. And that is something that I think we all could coalesce around. Do Texas Democrats take the House? Yes, Texas Democrats take the House. Um, I, I this I have I have many friends who are smarter than I am in politics who disagree with this statement, but I am firmly convinced that the amount of spending that is going to be developed in Texas from the presidential election will bleed down the ticket, take down John Cornyn, hand the House to the Democrats, and will pick up a seat or two in the Senate. We will not flip the Senate, but we'll, we'll improve. And that is wonderful because what's coming up in the next session is redistricting. And if we don't have at least a seat at the table in terms of control of one house down there, we're going to get another version of 2011's Tom DeLay massacre, you know, that just destroyed the electoral map of Texas. So it's, it's critical that we win those House seats. And that's the thing is, without straight ticket voting anymore, we can't afford to let up and think, oh, just because Biden looks like he's going to take this easily, it'll just all sweep down the ticket. We really need people out there working in the down ballot races. Well, Democrats have never been one to flow down the ballot, so to speak. And so we've always had to, we have always had to work harder at the down ballot victories, even if we were winning really big at the top. We've always had to work harder. Speaking of the top, we're going to wrap up. Before I go, 
I want to know if Phil Kingston were king and he could anoint Biden's VP, who would it be? Ayanna Presley. And Attorney General. Ooh, I want that job. Well, there you go. <laughs> I was going to ask you. I would be a great attorney general. I was going to ask if Phil Kingston, but I was going to, my last question for you was going to be, am I going to see Phil Kingston on the ballot anytime soon? You know, I would, I, there's nothing right now that's like calling to me. And if it's not calling to you, it is a terrible idea to run for office if your heart's not in it. I'm flattered by the question. I love, I, I would love to run again at some point, but what I need to do is answer that same question. Am I trying to be somebody or am I trying to do something? And so I got to find the thing that I need to do to help people. And if I find that and the job lines up with it, then yes, you'll see me run and I'll ask you and, and Wally for money and all of that fun stuff. I seem to be on everybody's list for money, Phil. <laughs> I, I think people have the wrong too. impression. I am too. I appreciate you being on the show today and sharing your unvarnished insights to the people of Texas, as well as the national impression of where our country is headed today. I'm honored to call you a friend, and, and I thank you very much for, for being with well, me. Well, you and Wally have just been so wonderful to us, and it's, it's, a, it's a thrill to be on your show because I've been listening and really enjoying it, and I'm worried that your listeners are going to be like, Okay, we've heard from, you know, national level political figures on Bob's show. Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think your I think your reach is a little broader than the Dallas City Council, Phil Kingston. So thank you so much for being here. I want to thank my listeners for being with us today on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book. Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy. It is available at your favorite online retailer or for download to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Thank you once again and many blessings. <laughs>